What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said to you that you had to make a difficult decision and endure life changes in the way you think and act? But if you didn't, you would die soon. A lot sooner than you needed to, in fact. Could you change when it really mattered, when it mattered most? According to the article, the odds are nine to one that you will not change, even in the face of certain death. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening, everyone. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Praxis. Can you turn to the person next to you and just tell them, Happy Sabbath? Okay, now turn to the person that you just ignored and say, Welcome to Praxis. I am so glad that you guys are here tonight. My name is Kelly. And I'm one of the leaders here at Praxis. And we've been doing a mini series. So we've been doing a Christmas series with Austin here, Pastor Austin. And we've been doing a fun mini series on my life for the last four weeks. So this is the last part. And I'm so glad that you guys could be here to join us um, for this last, I don't know, the last hurrah of my, of my life. Well, that sounds kind of terrible, but you know what I mean. Um, I want to talk tonight a little about inadequacy. I think inadequacy seeps a lot into all of our lives, but I think, I feel like it seeps especially into my life. From a young age, I always compared, I was always compared to with my brother. He's a year older than me. So he would obviously be better at reading, right? Like he's like five and I'm four, so he could already start reading. Or we would be going to the swimming pool together and he would already know how to do like all four strokes. And I was like still learning how to doggy paddle. So I had, <laughs> I had some issues like growing up with like inadequacy because I just wasn't sure if I was ever good enough. And then I had, does anyone here have any siblings? Yes, yeah, we, we have siblings here. I see you squishing Mariella's face, yes. <laughs> Um, I, I really was not sure if it was because I had an older brother, which made me feel inadequate. And so then I had a little, I got a little sister and I was like, oh, great. Like I can show her the ropes, right? Like, you know, we can like do life together. And then she ended up being better at everything than me. And I was like, wow, I love how this works. But she, she ended up um, having like straight A's, going to New York University, and was like a collegiate NCAA, like D3 athlete, like went to championships, like won nationals. Yeah, she's like amazing. So I was like, you know, it's, it's okay. Like my personality is kind of the type that's like, eh, like I'm happy for my siblings. And they have their own vices. So, you know, we have our own struggles. But I remember always feeling inadequate in some way or form. Like when I first started working as a surgical tech, um, my first week of work, I was terrified of everything. And I remember going into the OR for the first time and I would work in orthopedics and there were like 
hundreds of instruments that we would have to know and that we'd have to pass to surgeons. And I was, I was just so scared. I, was, I felt so inadequate. I remember being in school and, and I would never get the best of grades, which was ironic because I feel like people would always assume I was smart because I'm Asian. And I would go into class and people would want to be my partner for like math projects. And I'm like, bro, you don't want to be my, like, you don't want to be my partner. And then later they would find out like, yeah, I really didn't want to be Kelly's partner. <laughs> so, you know, like I always had struggles with feeling inadequate. And even tonight, I wasn't even sure what I wanted to share because I had sh shared a lot of my own vulnerabilities. And I felt honestly inadequate to share anything. And I realized that actually maybe it is the perfect thing to talk about because when we come to church, we greet each other and we say, hey, happy Sabbath. We're so glad you're here. I remember one of one of the times when I was growing up, I went to his church and the elder up front comes up and he says, don't we all look so perfect sitting in our seats and all dressed up and looking so nice? And he's like, you would never have guessed that my wife and I were screaming at each other this morning and telling the kids to get into the car. And then we're yelling at each other up until we got to the church doors and we put on a smile and we said, hello and happy Sabbath. <laughs> I think so much of church is amazing because it is a beautiful place to come and to talk and to praise and to celebrate God and to share life together. But I also think it is one of the best places to hide our fears, our insecurities, our journeys, and our inadequacies. And obviously there's an ideal time to share these sorts of things about ourselves. But I also recognize there's a lot more to our stories than maybe what meets the eye. And what makes me feel adequate or make me feel enough is recognizing that we weren't always meant to be completely independent on our own. We were meant to depend on something greater than ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There is a devotion that I read, actually, for this morning, and it was absolutely perfect, and so I wanted to read it today. It's from the devotion called Jesus Calling. It says, come to God with your gaping emptiness, knowing that in God you are complete. As you rest quietly in his presence, his light within you grows brighter and brighter. Facing the emptiness inside you is simply the prelude to being filled with his fullness. Therefore, rejoice on those days when you drag yourself out of bed, feeling sluggish and inadequate. Tell yourself that this is a perfect day to depend on him in childlike trust. So know that you are adequate in Christ. I know that I am adequate in Christ and that my weaknesses are made stronger in God. So whatever you're going through tonight, maybe this season of, of holidays, of Christmas, know that you are enough and don't give up 
even when your sacrifices aren't noticed or maybe even appreciated. Because what matters is that you are growing and that you are in relationship with God and within our community. Thank you. I don't know about you, but whenever I have the opportunity to be in control, I like to be in control. <laughs> Especially when I have to do things that I don't necessarily want to do. For instance, at home, you know, my wife and I split up the chores uh, week by week. We do different things. I'll like do laundry or vacuum or sweep the floor, or do the dishes or whatever it is on a given day or a given week. And I don't necessarily mind doing those things. They're probably not the most enjoyable parts of my day, but you know what makes them way less enjoyable? When I haven't done them and then I'm asked to do them. And the truth is I was planning on doing them anyway, but it makes it uh, so much less enjoyable when I'm asked to do something that I don't really want to do, even if I was already planning on doing it. I like to be in control. And I suppose that's true for many of us, most of us even. I got a lesson on being in control when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I think it was sophomore year, I had to take biology with the rest of the class. And over the course of the three quarters, we had to dissect a fetal pig. And so, you know, you go in there and you're this, you know, kid child, really, uh, just cutting this pig open and trying to identify different things and, and do whatever. And each of the three quarters, we had to switch up our partners. And so I remember one quarter in particular, I got a partner who was known for being someone in our class who was pretty smart and made very good grades and was consistently at the top of the class, kind of regardless of what class it was. And so that particular quarter, I wound up with this individual as my partner, and I thought, oh, this will be good. I will probably do well. Um, this is kind of like a group grade thing since we're dissecting this fetal pig together. Um, I'll learn a lot. It'll be a good time. I'll do well on the tests, whatever. And we got into dissecting this fetal pig, and it became evident very, very quickly that my partner did not want me touching anything at all, ever. So I sat there for the majority of that quarter and wrote down what I was told to write down. And I got a good grade, so in the end, I was like, well, whatever. But as that process kind of played out, I was like, man, I kind of wish I had a little bit more control here. It would be fun to kind of do some of this. But oh, well, you know, it is what it is, I suppose. I got to thinking, what would it be like to have like a lot of control? So I looked up earlier today, who are the most powerful people in the world? And if you look online, you'll see various different lists that say different things, but most of them tend to land in some fairly similar places. 
So here are the top 10 most powerful people in our world in 2021. Number one, Xi Jinping, who is the president of the People's Republic of China. Number two, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. Number three, Joe Biden, the current president of our country, the United States. Number four, Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany since 2005. Number five, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. Number six, Pope Francis, the Pope of the Holy See. Imagine that. Jeff Bezos is more powerful than God on earth. <laughs> Number seven, Bill Gates, of course, the co-founder of Microsoft. And number nine, Mohammed bin Salman al Saud, who is um, a politician in Saudi Arabia, often referred to as the Crown Prince. Number nine, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India. And then number 10, Larry Page, a co-founder of Google. So I got to thinking about that. What would it be like to have that kind of control? I would think that most of us know the majority of the names on that list. They're very powerful and influential people. And sometimes it would be nice to think about that. What if I had this kind of power? Well, today we come to the final, the final of four parts in the series of some different characters who play a role in the Christmas story. And we're going to look kind of at a, in a unique way at our final character. We're going to look at this character in a different way than we've looked at the three who've led up to this point. So just as a refresher, the three we've looked at thus far, number one is the shepherds or the shepherds. They are the people who you know, were sitting out in the fields and they were sung to by the angels and they went and they saw baby Jesus so they were the first character or set of characters. The number two, we looked at the Magi or the wise men. These men who came from somewhere in the east, according to the text, and they journeyed all the way to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem to find Jesus there. And they played a major role too. And then number three, that was last week. We looked at Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. So we come to number four today. And today we're going to look at a different character altogether. And that, of course, is the character of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But her story is a little interesting. You see, we were just read the scripture just a few moments ago, kind of the story of how Mary was called upon by God and by the angel Gabriel and told that she was going to be the mother of Jesus. But that story is kind of couched in a larger narrative in that chapter, in Luke chapter 1. And we see some other interesting things there that I think it is important for us to understand. So here's what we've got. Before and after that, we kind of had the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And in case you don't remember, in case you're not familiar, let me give you a short kind of narrative as to what happens there. 
So there's a priest, his name is Zechariah, and he's kind of doing his thing as they always do. And an angel of the Lord appears to him while he is in the holy of holy places in the temple and tells him, Zechariah, don't be afraid. Kind of the same way the angel will talk to Mary in a little bit. He says, you are going to have a son. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear a child. And Zechariah does not appear to believe the angel. He is skeptical. And the angel Gabriel is not happy. In fact, he says, okay, Zachariah, if you're going to be skeptical, I will give you a sign right now. You will be unable to speak until that child is born. And just like that, Zachariah is mute. He can't speak. And so then we kind of get into this narrative of Mary's. The birth of Jesus foretold in the text we read. And then, of course, following that encounter with the angel Gabriel, Mary kind of goes away. And she goes to visit Elizabeth, who was a relative of hers, who is further along in her pregnancy. And Elizabeth, of course, gives birth to John the Baptist. He is named as such. And that's kind of how the story goes. So we have kind of two parallel narratives going on here. On the one hand, Mary. And if you remember what was just read in the text, she's ready. She says, okay, Lord, as you say, let it be so. And then on the other hand, Zachariah, who is far uh, less believing, shall we say. He's a little bit skeptical. He says, how can this possibly happen? Elizabeth has been barren up to this point. How will she be able to bear a child now? So here we have two kind of competing narratives. And we're going to look at these narratives through an entirely different lens altogether. In fact, we're going to look at these two narratives through the context of a psalm. Psalm chapter 2. You see, what's interesting about this psalm is both Mary and Zechariah likely would have been familiar with it. You see, this psalm is a prophecy. It is a messianic prophecy, in fact, about the coming Messiah. So it comes in a few different stanzas. We're going to read it kind of stanza by stanza here, and we're going to take a look and see what it says and see if we can learn anything about what's going on here, and maybe we can learn how to act in a situation where we want control. So we're going to step into Psalm chapter 2, stanza 1. So that's the first three verses. So let's read them together here. The text says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And the truth is, if I had to summarize that stanza, I think I would say it is the people of the earth, it's humanity saying, we will do it our way. We want control. Now, sometimes when we want control, you know, things go badly and you say sorry and, and you move on with life. But sometimes when you want control when you shouldn't have it, Things go very, very poorly. Joseph Leconte, a professor at King's College in New York, writes about the last soldier to die in the Great War, or World War I. The soldier was an American, 23-year-old Henry Gunther, a private with the American Expeditionary Force in France. He was killed at 10.59 a.m. on November 11, 1918, one minute before the armistice went into effect. 
Gunther's squad, part of the 79th Infantry Division, encountered a roadblock of German machine guns near the village of Chamont devant Danviers, and against the order of his sergeant, he charged the guns with his bayonet. German soldiers, aware of the armistice, tried to wave him off, but Gunther kept coming and was gunned down. He died instantly. His divisional record states, almost as he fell, the gunfire died away and an appalling silence prevailed. I will do it my way. I don't need your help. I want control. Leave me alone. And you know, Gunther isn't the only one. I ran across another story recently written by Michael Giglieri, who, writes, who wrote a book entitled Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon. He says this. He has chronicled nearly 700 deaths that have occurred in the Grand Canyon since the 1870s. And of course, most people aren't shocked that fatal mishaps occur there. After all, the Grand Canyon is 277 miles long, up to 18 miles wide in certain places, and it attains a depth of over a mile at its deepest. The extreme temperatures, which often exceed 100 degrees, can quickly lead to heat stroke and dehydration. So how do most of these deaths occur? Air crashes account for the largest number of deaths at the Grand Canyon. Floods have claimed the lives of some river rafters. Other despondent souls have even taken their own lives. But according to Gigliari, a number of people have gone over the edge and fallen to their death through their own carelessness. Specifically, they ignored posted warnings and confidently walked out on dangerous precipices. For example, in 1992, a 38-year-old father jokingly tried to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping onto a guard wall. He flailed his arms as he pretended to lose his balance, then he comically fell on the canyon side onto a ledge he assumed was safe. But sadly, after ignoring numerous warning signs, he lost his footing and fell nearly 400 feet into the void below. Then in 2012, an 18-year-old woman who was hiking on the North Rim Trail decided to venture off the beaten path to have her picture taken at a spot known as Inspiration Point. As she sat down on the ledge of the 1,500-foot deep canyon, the rocks gave way, and she plummeted to her death. Despite the tragic nature of deaths like these, the facts remain that these deaths are entirely avoidable. There's signs everywhere saying, danger, stay away from the edge. But now we have people constantly saying, I'll do it my way. I don't need your help. I am in control. Everybody wants some control sometimes. We all want to have the power, but that's not always how it works. So we're going to continue on. We're going to continue on in this psalm, and we are going to read the second stanza. So if the first stanza said, we'll do it our way, I'll do it my way, the second stanza, I think, says something entirely different. So we're going to return to the text, this time starting with verse 4. And I think this stanza says, God is saying, I have a different plan. And so this is what it says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So I think it's God saying, I have a different 
plan. Author and founder of Peacemaker Ministries, Ken Sand, tells a story about observing a visually impaired woman who resisted the repeated warnings of her loyal and protective guide dog. One day during my morning run, Sand said, I noticed a blind woman walking on the other side of the street with her seeing eye dog, a beautiful golden retriever. As I was about to pass them, I noticed a car blocking a driveway a few paces ahead of them. At that moment, the dog paused and gently pressed his shoulder up against the woman's leg, signaling her to turn aside so they could get around the car. I'm sure she normally followed his lead, but that day she didn't seem to trust him. She had probably walked this route many, many times before this and knew this was not the normal place to make a turn. Whatever the cause, she wouldn't move to the side and instead gave him the signal to move ahead. He again pressed his shoulder against her leg, trying to guide her on a safer path, and she angrily ordered the dog to go forward. When he again declined, her temper flared. I was about to speak up when the dog once more put his shoulder gently against her leg, and sure enough, she kind of kicked at him. And then she impulsively stepped forward and bumped square into that car. Reaching out to feel the shape of the car, she immediately realized what had happened. Dropping to her knees, she threw her arms around the dog and spoke sobbing words into his ears. God says, I have a different plan. I know you think you know the way. But believe me, God says, I know the way. And the truth is, even though we want control and we want to do it our way, Sometimes our way can put us in harm's way and can be very dangerous in our respective lives. So I guess that statement obviously begs the, uh, the question, what is the plan then? If we want control on the one hand and God says he has a plan on the other hand, the natural question that would arise from our perspective would be, okay then, well, what is the plan And so I think to answer that question, we return once more to the text, back to Psalm chapter 2 to read stanza number 3. And so we return, this time beginning in verse 7. The psalmist writes here, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The plan is simple, really. It can be summed up in a single sentence, in fact. God says, my plan is my son. Remember, this this psalm was written hundreds and maybe even thousands of years before Jesus was born, especially if it was written by someone like King David, who many scholars agree is likely to have written this psalm. And so here, if King David indeed wrote this psalm, he is describing his own situations. There were some pretty major issues surrounding David's own ascension to power in Israel, especially with Saul, the many hostile nations surrounding them. And David describes this interesting scene here. David says those exact words that we just read. He says, God said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, that's pretty 
violent language, I suppose. You will dash them to pieces like pottery, God says. And this image to us might seem kind of odd or strange or unfamiliar, or we read it in the text and we think, okay, the psalmist is describing something, dashing pieces of pottery, and we kind of move on. But this is actually kind of an illustration or a word picture that people during that period of time would have been familiar with. You see, according to the Bible knowledge commentary, that idea would have brought to mind the image of Egyptian pharaohs because for them, it was customary for a pharaoh to smash clay pots with his scepter to represent the conquering of rebellious cities or nations So when David writes that, and when the psalmist writes that, and when God says that, you will smash them to pieces like pottery. Literally, the word picture or, you know, the mental image that would have come to mind is putting down rebellions. You will be in control. So this is an illustration that would have been familiar to the people of that day. So the thing is, he kind of changes it up a little bit. It's not exactly how they would have expected it. You see, when God does that, when he smashes the uh, proverbial pottery, he doesn't do it in the same exact manner that a pharaoh or a king would have done. Instead, he does so in a very different way because God is loving and caring and tender and gentle, and he is not violent, and he doesn't send a mighty ruler to crush down rebellions in the same way that they would have then or even in ways we see today. You see, God sends his solution in the form of a very, very small child, in the form of a baby. And he does it in a way that is loving and understanding, but in a way that will change the world. So he says, this is the way I'm going to pull the plug on your controlling tendencies. And I will not do it forcefully, but I will do it lovingly. In fact, he says, I am sending my son, my own flesh and blood, to cover you and to cover your sins And he will change everything. So first, we have humanity saying, we will do it our way. Then God responds and he says, I have a different plan. My plan is my son. But he isn't quite done yet. You see, he extends an invitation and offer a call for us to join him. In the fourth and final stanza of this psalm, God says, surrender and live. So let's read it together, the final stanza. David writes this. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So first we say, we will do it our way. We don't need anybody's help. We want control. We want the power. But then God responds and he says, listen, I have a different plan. One that will change the world where nothing will remain as it was before. And my plan, he says, is my son. I'm sending him to you and he will carry your burdens. He will change your lives. He will put the broken pieces back together. And ultimately... He is going to die for it. So surrender and live. An article from the magazine Fast Company 
began with the following paragraph. Change or die? What if you were given that choice? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said to you that you had to make a difficult decision and endure life changes in the way you think and act? But if you didn't, you would die soon. A lot sooner than you needed to, in fact. Could you change when it really mattered, when it mattered most? According to the article, the odds are nine to one that you will not change, even in the face of certain death. The author based that statistic on a well-known study by Dr. Edward Miller, the dean of the medical school and CEO of the hospital at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Miller studied patients whose heart disease was so severe that they had to undergo bypass surgery, a traumatic and expensive procedure that can cost more than $100,000 if complications arise. About 600,000 people have bypasses in the United States every year, and 1.3 million heart patients have angioplasties. The procedures temporarily relieve chest pains but rarely prevent heart attacks or prolong lives. Around half of the time, the bypass grafts clog up in a few years, the angioplasties in a few months. The causes of this so-called restenosis are complex. It's sometimes a reaction to the trauma of the surgery itself, but many patients could avoid the return of pain and the need to repeat the surgery, not to mention alter the course of the disease before it kills them, by switching to healthier lifestyles. Yet very few do. Dr. Miller summarizes his research on patients' inability or unwillingness to change their lives by saying this. If you look at people after coronary artery bypass grafting two years later, 90% of them have not changed their lifestyle. And that's been studied over and over and over again. And so we're missing some link here. Even though they know that they have a very bad disease and they know they should change their lifestyle, for whatever reason, they can't. There's this drive within us to control our own destinies, to just do things our own way. And the truth is, in the end, that will <laughs> probably do us a lot more harm than it will do us good. So here's the thing. We've got two, remember, competing narratives here. On the one hand, we have Mary, who is sitting there when the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you are going to be the mother of Jesus, the savior of this world. And then on the other hand, we've got Zachariah, who is told after many, many years of being unable to bear children, your wife is going to also bear a son. And doubtless in that moment, both of them together thought, we are losing control. Life is what it is, and sometimes you have control, and sometimes you don't. But in that particular moment, it must have felt like they were losing a lot of control. And so they both have kind of a choice. A choice about how they're going to react and what they're going to do. And you guys know how the stories end. You've read the text, you've heard the story. You know what Christmas is about. But today, we stand here, and the choice is the same for each and every one of us. We all stand at a crossroads. 
a place where doubtless we all want control. You want to be able to do things your own way for whatever reason. It feels safer, it's more comfortable, it's familiar. We want control. But as this Christmas season continues on forward, and we go spend the time with our families, our friends, we open the gifts, we sing the carols, we eat the food, I would encourage you to pause, if but for just a moment. And remember the reason we celebrate this season. Remember Christ, remember the child, and remember that choice. Because if you allow him to take control, as difficult as that may be sometimes, life will not look the same. But believe me, it will turn into something you never, ever could have imagined before. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there. On a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment, it makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.